This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Dell Technologies. When it comes to your business, we'll stop at nothing. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. With vaccines starting to roll out, many companies have started to plan some form of return to office life. Remote work arrangements are also predicted to become permanent over the long haul. Zoom COO Aparnabawa, McKinsey Global Institute's Susan Lund, and Wharton School of Business professor Adam Grant joined the Post to discuss the ways the pandemic has changed the workplace and how the structure and culture of work could continue to evolve in the future. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent at The Post, and we are excited to continue our conversation today on the future of work. So much has changed in the past year and how our daily lives and our daily routines. And for many people, their daily routine now includes use of a platform like Zoom. So we are excited today to have a conversation with Zoom's Chief Operating Officer, Aparna Bawa. Welcome, Aparna. Thank you, Heather, for having me. So I want to start and take us through that moment that March, you know, March 13th, the president declares a national emergency within the next few days. So many schools and businesses shut down, start working from home. Take us through when you all notice this massive seismic shift for your business. Was it March 13th? Kind of give us a sense of that explosion that happened for you all. You know, I will make it a little bit more personal for you, Heather. Um, so I have two kids and my own kids, you know, started remote learning in March. And for me, it was the realization once we offered K through 12 services for free to schools in the United States, um, it was the realization when my kids, friends, parents, or mom, moms called me and said, oh my goodness, I finally know what you do. (laughs) (laughs) We're on your platform. And it was so funny. My nieces were calling me, you know, everybody was, it it was more along the lines of, we finally figured out what your company does. Um, And it was very mainstream. And that's when it hit me. When I got pings from my family members or even my friends saying, we're going to go to a wedding on Zoom. We're having this, you know, this memorial on Zoom. You know, that's when it hit me personally, I would say. And I think that's the same for the company. The catalyst was March. um, When we moved from being a a solution that offers remote workplace options to one that is embedded into daily life um, and it continues to be so. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, So one of the questions that I often get about Zoom is you have a lot of competitors that are very big companies, the Googles, the Cisco's, the Microsoft's of the world. And yet Zoom has become a verb. It's it's in the past year. it, It really became one of the defining technologies of this pandemic. Why do you think Zoom beat out all these other big competitors? Look, Heather. It is very simple. We do know we've had big competitors ever since this company was started. Um, It's not like the space didn't have any competitors and it was a greenfield opportunity and it was only Zoom in the the marketplace. When Zoom was founded, 
it was going up against some pretty large legacy tech solutions. I would say it's our continued and maniacal focus on two things, our customers and responding to their feedback as fast as possible, as appropriately as possible. So we, we want to make sure we are dialed in to our customer needs so tight that our response times are very low. And the second thing is our focus on our employees. It is really important to us if we can address our employee concerns, because that means we're addressing our customer concerns. So how does that show up? It shows up in a maniacal focus around innovation. We believe that as long as we continue to put out features and functionality and ease of use that is valuable to our customers, that's all that we can do to deliver value. And competitors mm-hmm. will be competitors, but we need to focus on us providing innovation and value to our customers. And your, the scale of growth was just tremendous. As you all have put out those figures you know, a year ago in January, about 10 million users by April, uh, I believe it's over 300 million users, just a phenomenal growth. Uh, can you tell us kind of the two or three key challenges of scaling up so fast? I mean, did you have to hire a lot more people? Sort of what were those initial challenges? Obviously, there were a lot of privacy concerns Absolutely. initially. Absolutely. So I just want to put it in context. The, the, the statistic that we cite is in December 2019, we had on average 10 million daily meeting participants. And by the time we hit April, so a month after, you know, you, you talked about the March 13th federal directive, a month after that, we had hit around 300 million on average daily meeting participants. That, in hindsight, you know, seems like something that we should have planned, but the pandemic was unplanned for all of us. And, and yes, we have grown tremendously. I just want to take you back to that time frame. You know, we were largely a company that focused on workplace solutions and things changed dramatically. So we had to do a whole host of things differently. First of all, our own employee base was getting impacted by the pandemic. We were sending people home too. And our own employee base was worried about their fathers, their kids, their grandparents, et cetera. And so in the midst of all of that, we had to figure out how to first deploy the people that we had to address this significant demand. I will say I'm so proud of my fellow Zoomies. Everybody rolled up their sleeves and pitched in. I mean, we changed jobs. So if you were running events for marketing, like sort of in-person events for enterprise uh, customers, et cetera, you were redeployed into helping with online training videos for our teachers. You, you know, we had receptionists that worked in order management and billing. It, the whole company came together to deliver to this demand, which I'm so proud of. Um, the second thing we did, you know, our technology is really scalable. And it's a testament to our engineering team. We have a highly scalable cloud-native architecture with a very distributed backend infrastructure. So what what do I mean by that? We have about 19 co-located data centers that along with public clouds, sort of AWS and OCI, for example, we can leverage very quickly to increase capacity and adjust to demand. And it is a testament to the technology. I'm going to be honest to you about that. And so we had our engineers and our 
DevOps folks working around the clock to adjust to this scale and capacity. 10 million daily meeting participants, and then three months later, 300 million daily meeting participants. You know, adding servers, tens of thousands of servers in the span of a couple hours. So we had a lot of folks, you know, bring their muscle to bear on a very sort of scalable architecture to make this work, knock on wood, I'm knocking on my wood right here, my door panel, um, you know, without significant reliability or quality issues, which is fantastic. Yeah. And yes, Let me we, have hired, in, uh, we, we have hired a we lot of folks. Yes, go ahead. Limited time. And I want to ask you, um, what, a lot of people were hopeful about these vaccines, were hopeful about maybe being able to get back out again more than we have been. Uh, obviously, that could be big change for Zoom. Maybe people won't be at home on the computer as much as they have been. Uh, how much drop-off in Zoom use uh, do you all think will happen after the pandemic? So, Heather, the future of work, in my mind, has forever changed. It has opened up possibility for, let's break it down, it's opened up possibilities for businesses. You know, even businesses like ourselves, we have realized that our employees are very productive when given choice, when given some sort of a hybrid model. I think that you will see a lot more hybrid models out there in the workplace. Um, what do they look like? Depend on the particular company and how that com- what you know what's the market that that company plays in. What is the you know the the nature of the people that work for that company, et cetera, and what's the jobs that they do? Um, you know, it could be we are all in at the same time, all out at the same time. You get some choice where you you know certain groups go in two to three days a week. You know, you come out of the office two to three days a week. It could be project based. You know, even something as we get together to work together when we are you know, ideating on a particular new feature or a product design, when we're working on a particular pitch, uh, but when we're doing our own PowerPoint presentations, we're at home and saving ourselves you know, the time on the commute, et cetera. Yeah. So I think there's gonna be sort of uh, different models of hybrid. And I know you have Adam Grant coming on, who I think is fabulous. And one of the things that he says is, you know, we should be experimenting you know, based on this. And I think Zoom will be a part of all of that experimentation and the hybrid models that we see going forward. What we have delivered to enterprises is the idea that you can be flexible and that, you know, we provide a, a joint sort of learning environment where you can have people that are in the office, people that are outside of the office, and you can deliver a very quality outcome. The other thing I will say is there are certain verticals, you know, healthcare, education, government, et cetera, where we provide opportunity to expand the reach. So a healthcare visit, for example, you don't have to in California where I live, you don't have to drive 45 minutes in the morning to go visit your doctor. We've been doing video visits and it's been great. Um, You know, I will say that I think that that's going to continue. Yeah. Can I push you on that a little bit? You've probably seen Bill Gates, you know, raise a lot of eyebrows when he predicted 50% of business travel wouldn't come back because people can use Zoom and other platforms. And he predicted on that hybrid model you're talking about that about 30% of office time, in office time, Mm -hmm. would never come 
back. And that raised a lot of eyebrows when he said it in the fall. I mean, do you all think that that's the magnitude we're looking at? Kind of give me a sense of, of your estimates of the magnitude of change that will endure. So what I will say is we've looked at some studies as well. And I think there was a recent BCG study that came out. Um, 60% of professional want, professionals want some flexibility in where and how they work. And since March 2020, there have been over four times as many jobs offering remote positions. The reality is not every job is going to be remote possible, but what will, you will see is a hybrid where, you know, some people, because of the nature of their jobs, have to go into work, but some people don't. And I think it's up to enterprises to figure out how to unlock the most amount of productivity in their workforces. Yeah. And what we're finding is that enterprises are realizing this idea of remote work doesn't have to result in lack of productivity. And in fact, with technologies like Zoom, where you can integrate the in the office, out of the office environment, you can expand your reach. No longer do you just have to hire in you know, an hour worth of commute radius around the Bay Area, because you know, you, that's, that's the, the, the quality of life expectation for your workforce. You, know, you can go further. We at Zoom, for example, I mean, we're hiring all over the United States now and, and internationally. Of course, there's time zone impact that you have to take into mind, but your reach is bigger. No longer are you looking yeah. at regions to hire these difficult positions, but you can go anywhere. And so the world is your oyster. Yeah. Um, another thing that comes up as we think about what this future might look like, uh, one is maybe along the hybrid approach, there's gonna be a lot more mixed meetings. Some people will be in person in a room, mm -hmm. some will probably be on a Zoom type platform. The other thing I hear a lot is one of the few limitations of the platform is you can't feel anything. Obviously you can't shake somebody's hand, but also people in the fashion industry are, you know, remind me that you can't touch a fabric. There's, And so I'm wondering if you could give us a taste of some of the uh, evolution of your product that you think could help address some of these needs going forward for business and for others. You know, if I'm trying on a wedding dress, I probably right. want to feel the fabric. <laughs> I'm so excited you asked this question. One of the biggest aha moments for us, even as a management team, um, we suddenly were meeting all of us in these similarly sized boxes and one of our executives who lives in New York commented that finally I get to, you know, have a voice in the room. We're all the same size boxes. And before we had, you know, of course we had a few people here and there, um, you know, joining this, our staff meetings uh, without, you know, being in the room, but it having similarly sized boxes democratizes the meeting. It sort of provides an equal voice to everybody. You have to watch before, you know, you don't want to interrupt someone else. So you have to, you know, sort of take your cues as to when they're done, et cetera. Um, it is a very de democratizing process. We at Zoom are working on how to bring that into a hybrid model. We don't want to go back to Eric, our CEO staff meetings, where our global CIO in New York feels like he has to wave his hand to get a word in edgewise. We would really want to, and, and we have introduced or we have, um, talked about a new feature we're introducing, which is a smart gallery, where 
you know, you actually will take the, the folks in the conference room and give them their own video boxes on Zoom so that a person who is not a part of that physical meeting and is joining remotely can actually see the response of each you know, participant in, it, in their own video box and can sort of participate in the same way on the screen in the Zoom room in the physical room. Uh, they will get their own video boxes as well. So it, it's those types of ideas that you know, we wanna focus on to make the hybrid work and learning environment more palatable for all and offer an opportunity for everybody to have an equal voice. The fabric concept, you know what? If we can do it, we will do it. I mean, if it's, if it's a function, for example, on the music side, we've already sort of introduced different noise suppression modules. Now, for example, uh, my son takes piano lessons and obviously is not going in to the class to take piano lessons, but we, the teacher monkeys around with the noise suppression because he wants to hear certain tonality. We also have a yeah. music feature, you know, for, uh, audio feature for, for music. If you're, if you're doing those sort of piano lessons, et cetera, um, in, your, um, in your work, if you will. So I would say the wedding dress, you know what? The, the video quality of Zoom is amazing. So you, if you get up close, you can see the, 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 the drape and the fluidity of the wedding dress. I will tell you, um, you know, uh, I've had folks sort of ship, <laughs> ship samples to me, believe it or not, to just to get a sense of the, of the, of the drape, even if you are looking sort of at something online. Um, there are endless possibilities, and I think it's mm -hmm. up to us to discover them. My favorite is my favorite is that I think our CEO talks about how he is working personally working on something to let you reach over and shake someone's hand and maybe yeah. even smell the pizza on the other side. So <laughs> yeah, that's something on a smell function. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. We'll have to have another chat <laughs> here and see. But um, lastly, I sit here in Washington, D.C. We've obviously got a new administration, a new Congress. And in your industry in particular, and for Zoom, there's been a lot of debate about the role you would play, tech companies play, in monitoring. You know, there is what kind of content's going on. There was some controversy last year and even this month over Zoom videos that were censored or taken down and these types of things. So broadly, I'd like to ask you, this is around the Section 230, and I know you have a legal background. Do you think the law needs to change the Section 230? And can you say briefly how you would like to see it evolve? I do think, you know, we are focused on providing communications to people, valuable communications, pandemic or not, our business is in promoting and providing the opportunity to have a free and open and exchange of ideas and bringing people together. Um, I think our policies that support that are very important to Zoom. Um, we, we want our platform to be a trusted space where you can come, you know, we've, we've, done, we've done certain things over, as you said, we've evolved in our sort of privacy and security based on feedback from our customers. Um, we have launched certain features such as our end-to-end -end encryption feature on our, on our meeting platform. 
that provides that you know you are in a safe and secure environment, um, and you, the the keys are the cryptographic keys are with the client and the client alone. That's just an example. Um, you know, obviously, this is a debate that is happening. Um, there are trade-offs, and yeah. for us, the focus is on providing our customers a trusted platform that promotes the free and open and exchange of ideas. And to the extent yeah. that we can continue to do that, those are the policies that we will support. Aparna, thank you so much. I wish I could shake your hand, but hopefully down the road <laughs> we can do that. Sure. And... <laughs> yes. Thank you. Absolutely. And to our viewers, um... Thank you for having me, Heather. Take care. And to our viewers, please stay with us. We've got more exciting discussion ahead. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Jean Mazur. When the pandemic hit, many aspects of our lives were turned upside down, including how we work. Instead of going to the office and interacting face-to-face -face with our colleagues, many of us were doing our work over our kitchen table. But there was one firm that dealt with this transition better than most because they had not just been talking about remote work, they had been implementing remote work. Here to tell us more about that is Christy Hummel. Christy is Senior Vice President of Human Resources for Dell Technologies. Welcome, great to have you with us. Great to be here, Jean, thank you. So Christy, how is it that Dell Technologies was already talking about remote work? Well, Gene, our, our remote work journey started way before COVID. So 10 years ago, we said we wanted to be a much more flexible culture. You know, as a, as a company in, in the technology industry, you know, we felt that that was the way that uh, the workplace was headed and we wanted to be on the forefront of that. So in 2009, Dell set out to uh, create a more flexibility in its workforce. So kind of over the, the 10 years, you know, we got to a place in February of 2020, a month before COVID, where 65% of our team members had some flexibility in their job by their design. So team member driven flexibility. So when COVID hit and we had to move over 90% of our team members to being remote, it was not as big of a jump as if it would have been if we hadn't already started on this journey. Why had you decided to even embark on this journey? What were you hoping it would give you? And did it produce the results you wanted? Well, flexibility, we felt, was a cornerstone for, for our culture. We wanted to make sure our team members really had a voice in the design of their jobs. And we knew if we did this, we'd be able to cast a wider net and attract kind of different talent to Dell and keep that talent happy through all phases of their non-work life. So flexibility has really been part of who we are as a company. And, uh, you know, with COVID, we saw that really come in to, to help us. And, you know, we're now looking as we start to work our way out of COVID to continue to accelerate uh, our flexibility uh, in our work style and our ability to give our team members a choice in how they work best. Have you been able, with people working where they choose, to maintain your company culture? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, Gene. And I know a lot of companies are really going to have to start to think about this in ways they've never they've never had to. You know, we were in a place where 
uh, where with 60% of our team members not necessarily coming into the office every day, we knew some of the cultural attributes we had to to really make sure we were amplifying across our company. You know, firstly, you know our um, our communication process and how we actually translate our strategy to objectives and making sure all team members understood how they play into uh, those objectives. Secondly, we did a lot of development and a lot of training. We still do on on our with our managers on how do you actually go lead remote teams and how do you go make remote teams uh, feel part of our company. But I think. Ultimately, the, the real changer for us was the redefinition of work itself. So we as a company have said, work is all about outcomes for us. It's not about a time and place. It's not about clocking in. It's about driving to, to outcomes. And when you're a workplace where you start to really focus on outcomes and less about about when and where work gets done makes it much easier to go make this transition. And then you build your talent processes around that in order to make sure your culture is preserved. Has this maintained productivity or increased productivity? Has it increased innovation? Uh, so, so absolutely. So and let me talk about it in a few different ways. On the productivity side, you know, we know our team members because we've been on this journey. Uh, you know, we know when our team members can design where their work happens and focus really on their outcomes, uh, that productivity goes up because people have a, a view into how they work and what work style works better for them. On the innovation side, you know, the fact that we have such a flexible uh, uh, work culture, the, facts, the fact that we're on a journey to make sure that any team member can be developed from anywhere, that really helps us bring in the best team members. It helps us um, go drive innovation in ways that you know we may not have been able to uh, if we were all kind of in one location in one city. So you know the fact that we can kind of look at the globe as our talent footprint and make sure we're getting the best, you know, really helps our, our helps us to um, hone and cultivate innovation in our company. So look to the future. Is there any going back to the way it used to be, and what will it look like going forward? Yeah, no way, Jean. We are we're putting our, our pedal to the metal here and continuing to accelerate this journey. We know we continue to build our talent processes uh, around a flexible work work culture. We know continuing to help our leaders uh, understand how to manage and develop and drive innovation when work is your outcome. We know we're going to get the best talent here at Dell, and we know the best talent is going to want to stay at Dell. Christy Hummel, Senior Vice President of Human Resources for Dell Technologies. Thanks so much. And I will now hand it back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello again, I'm Heather Long, an economics correspondent at the Washington Post. And I'm now joined by two guests who are at the forefront of thinking about the future of work. Susan Lund is the head of the McKinsey Global Institute, puts out a number of great reports to help us think through the future of work. And Adam Grant, known to many as a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of some groundbreaking books, including one that's out next week. Think Again will be out next week. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Edith. 
having us, haven't Heather? Uh, Susan, let me start with you. Recently, you said something really profound. You said firms are not just going back to their pre-pandemic state, but completely reimagining how they work. Give us a sense of the scale of this transformation. Many people heard Bill Gates say in the fall that he thought 50% of business travel would never come back and 30% of office hours would probably never come back. You know, what kind of a scale of transformation are we likely to see coming out of this pandemic, hopefully, if we get out of it? Uh, we will get out of it. It's going to be very big. So we're releasing a report in a month about the future of the work after COVID-19. And I think that what we found when we look at this issue of remote work, um, we've assessed which activities can be done at home on your computer and which benefit from being in person. Things like negotiations and onboarding new employees, making critical decisions, things like that. And when we parse out how the workforce in the US spends its time, we agree with Bill Gates that 30% of time spent by Americans in all sorts of jobs could be done from home. Um, when we look at individual people, what it means is roughly one in five people could work from home three to five days a week. Um, for business travel, um, our experts think maybe 20% of business travel won't come back because we'll replace it with Skype and Zoom and these types of virtual meetings. Um, and that those trends, they sound like somewhat small numbers. It is important to remember most Americans need to be on site at their jobs. But for those who can work remotely, this could have profound implications for urban centers and for the way we work. Um, the upside is that what we're seeing in companies is that it really flattens hierarchies. When you've got everyone, first of all, at home, you hear dogs barking, children coming in. It's really created a different culture um, and it speeds up decision making because executives aren't always on the airplane and traveling here and there. It's much you can get people together much faster. But at the same time, I think that companies need to watch out for ensuring that employees remain engaged and feel connected to the organization. It's going to be important. Uh, especially for new hires to maintain a culture that includes everyone. Um, things like mentoring and coaching and creating opportunities for other requires in-person interaction. And then finally, in the long term, we're going to have to keep an eye on productivity metrics uh, to make sure that this time around, what we used to call telecommuting um, actually maintains productivity. Yeah. Adam, I'd like you to jump in on that. What you think the key trends are that are likely to remain post-pandemic that we should really be thinking about and focusing on? Well, Heather, I think the data I'm seeing are very consistent with what we heard from Susan. Um, there's a survey of 15,000 Americans that was just published showing that if you look at a wide range of employers across industries, people expect that they'll do about 22% of their work on average remotely. And that's not necessarily a mix of, you know, of people being hybrid to different degrees. That's a lot of companies saying we are going to invite people to work from home one or two days a week. Now, obviously, that's going to be disproportionately knowledge workers. Uh, it'll also be certain kinds of service jobs. A lot of manufacturing just can't go remote. But I think in light of those trends, what we're generally seeing is that there are benefits for, for productivity and to some extent for creativity. When people have the flexibility to work when it's convenient for them and also the autonomy uh, to focus on projects that are meaningful. I think the big risks are collaboration and culture. And I think any company that's onboarded new people 
has been dealing with fundamental questions about how do I create a sense of common values and norms when none of these people have actually seen our culture in action or lived it by it being physically present. And I think we have some big questions about that that we need to figure out how to tackle. Mm. Let me just follow up quickly. You said that you made the argument it has improved productivity. There's been a lot of debate about that. What makes you confident that productivity has increased and could stay high in this more work from home world? Well, I would actually start with pre-pandemic data. There's a, an excellent experiment that Nick Bloom and his colleagues did at Ctrip, where they randomly assigned hundreds of employees to work from homes and then tracked their productivity over the next six to nine months. And on average, people were 13.5% more productive, in part because they didn't have to waste time commuting, they were able to focus and concentrate. Um, I think that if you look at what's happened since the pandemic, people have only gotten better at coordinating and collaborating and getting things done independently. Now, granted, I think there is a cost, which is a lot of us are working two to three hours longer per day, and we're also taking our kids through online school and juggling a lot of competing responsibilities. But there was a new experiment that, that just tested what happens when you let people work remotely versus you send them into the office and actually use people as their own controls. So you track somebody's productivity mm. one week or two weeks from home, and then you send them back into the office and you see whether they get better or worse. And across the board, there were productivity gains and they were most pronounced for working mothers who are able to work from home because they were able to, wow. to navigate their schedules in such a way they could get everything done, both on the home and the work front. So I think that kind of flexibility is probably a boot. Wow, Adam, you read my mind. Susan, I wanted to ask you about the women question. Obviously, many people have read the headlines that this has been a she session. Women hurt particularly hard in this recession with a lot of the service sector jobs that have been impacted. and. Uh, a little bit different to what Adam said, perhaps. It seemed like McKinsey had put out a report in November saying that this work from home for women was a mixed blessing. And so I'm wondering, how do we get women back in the workforce and how do we make this viable going forward? It's going to be such a key part of our economy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the unemployment that we've seen in this pandemic has fallen disproportionately on women. And when we look forward over the next decade at some of the trends that we think will persist, like higher use of e-commerce, uh, the delivery economy, maybe an acceleration in automation, all of that, again, falls disproportionately on women, on underrepresented minority groups, um, and on people with less education. So yes, for professional women who can work from home, uh, it has been, I would say, a mixed bag because schools are still closed for most people trying to do online education and be the teacher, uh, the professional, as well as running the household has been really a challenge. And I think this is why we've seen lower labor force participation. Um, to move beyond that, though, schools will reopen. We will get vaccinated. Uh, and in that case, I do think that um, it is a benefit. There are many people uh, who say they would like to work from home part time, either to care for children, to care for elderly parents um, and, and millennials. So we're seeing plenty of millennials say, I'm happy to give up an hour or two of commuting to have more time to exercise um, or, or do other personal hobbies. So. I think in the long term, the work from home could be good for women, but at the moment, it's women who are really disproportionately hit and really some of the less educated, um, low-wage jobs that are being um, disrupted. Yeah. 
Uh, Adam, I want to ask, pick up on that point, the low wage jobs. Everybody understands that that's really been hard hit and this idea of the K-shaped recovery and the re recession is mostly over for the rich, but still very much a deep recession for many low wage workers. One of the big concerns with a lot of these trends we're talking about around the future of work is could we see millions of low wage workers not have a job to return to? Are we going to sort of have are they going to have to retrain? And so I'm curious to get your take. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Where do you fall on this idea that there could be millions of low-wage jobs that just don't return? I don't have a crystal ball, but I think if we look at the data from past recessions, the general pattern is displacement, right? There are probably jobs that are going to go away and not come back. Uh, there, we've all seen you know, people who are doing certain kinds of service work realize, you know what? A lot of what I've been doing could be automated. Uh, we've seen the struggles with uh, with people who are doing also gig jobs, uh, where they're not necessarily able to maintain stability. I think that it's possible we're actually going to start to see some degree of a shift in that workers want some degree of job security. They want to make sure that they have benefits, and they don't have faith that organizations are always going to provide them. I wonder if we're going to see a little bit of a return to guilds in some sectors where people belong to an occupation rather than an organization. They say, look, I'm gonna try to have a set of skills that I rent out, and those will be available to a variety of organizations who may need five hours or seven hours of my time in the week, as opposed to 40 or 45. Uh, but I think it's, it's really too early to guess. Yeah. So I'm sitting here in Washington, DC. We obviously have a new president, Congress now controlled by the Democratic Party for the most part. And I'd like to ask both of you what your top one or two advice or policy changes that you would like to see that could A, help ensure we don't leave people behind coming out of this pandemic, and B, make the United States a leader in the future of work and a leader in these changes that we'd like to see. Um, Susan, maybe we'll go to you first and then Adam. What, what are those one or two key points for policymakers right now? Well, first, I think, is expanding the digital infrastructure. Well, we've seen devastating impacts on students from low-income um, houses and from rural areas. People who don't have access to high-speed broadband have really been put at a disadvantage uh, during the pandemic with online learning, with telemedicine, trying to work remotely. We see high school students and college students dropping out when they don't have access to digital infrastructure. So we've talked about the digital divide for a long time, but now it's even more imperative. That's number one. And I'd say secondly, I would agree with your point, Heather, about the need to really step up workforce retraining. Um, like Adam, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do have an economic model. And to give away one of the headlines from our report coming out in a month, we think that there is a very real scenario in which a lot of the large employment, low-wage jobs in retail and in food service uh, just go away in the coming years. And that means that not only do these people need to find different career paths, but typically it's careers at higher wage levels, which if we make it happen would be great, but it means that we're going to need a lot more short-term training and credentialing programs to create opportunities for people to get on a career ladder with upward mobility. Hmm. Adam, jump in for us on what's top of your yeah. mind for policymakers. Well, 
Susan has a lot more knowledge than I do about policy, right? My expertise is much more about leadership and organizations, but there are a couple of national conversations that I would love to see started by the current administration. One has to do with the synchronization of the school day and the work day. I think it's crazy that there's this two hour gap that so many parents have faced for decades now, if not even a century, where kids are out of school by 3 p.m., but people are expected to work until 5 p.m. And one of my hopes with the newfound flexibility that virtual work and remote work has given us is that we'll start to line those up so that people who do have kids don't have to do so much crazy juggling. I think the, the other conversation that, that seems important is the question of an economic safety net. Uh, when you compare the US to a lot of other countries in Western Europe, we do very poorly when it comes to support for unemployment, uh, opportunities for, for people to get training in how to search for a job, let alone the upscaling that Susan's talking about. And I think we need to do a much better job giving people some degree of a place to land uh, in the wake of all these downsizings that too many companies have adopted too quickly. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask Susan, um, what does the office look like going forward in 2021 and 2022? We hear about all these companies who are giving up some space or thinking about new space or obviously trying to have more people work from home. Uh, give us a sense of some of those trends that you all foresee in terms of the physical footprint changing of companies. So I think we're going to see an acceleration of this trend towards more collaborative spaces. So when you do go to the office, you're not sitting in a cubicle or an office at your computer alone. If you're doing that, you can do that from home. When you go into the office, it will be to be in meetings, to meet with other people, doing brainstorming, innovation. Um, and so offices will be more collaborative spaces, more team rooms, et cetera, with maybe individual phone booths for the calls that have to be done and the meetings that have to be done in private. So there will be a lot of office redesign. I think that it will be sort of a continuation of the trend that we saw towards hoteling and more flex space offices. I think another trend though, post pandemic, I think that some of the health and hygiene concerns will stick. So a lot of companies are thinking about the contactless office solution, where you can reserve office uh, space on your phone, you can enter doors without touching buttons, um, and those sorts of things so that uh, when you do come in, people will still be able to maintain distance if they want, and just minimize the amount of touch and contact that you have face to face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Adam, I want to ask you about your expertise in, in leadership. You wrote something really interesting in the past few months that the COVID crisis may inspire a movement towards more ethical and compassionate leadership, and that employees are demanding this type of leadership. Talk to us about what this, why this is happening, why is this shift happening, and what's, um, what are we likely to see going forward? Well, we can hope. I was referencing some research that Emily Bianchi did on the effect of starting your career in a recession on what kind of leadership you end up developing and, and adopting. What Emily shows is that if you launch your career when the economy is really suffering, you actually pay your employees more generously when you rise into the C-suite. There's something about the formative moment of imprinting on the workforce when it's just difficult to get a job that seems to cultivate a lasting sense of appreciation and responsibility. And I think that may be good news for at least a generation of leaders. I think the, the other piece of this is to the point that you raised, Heather, there's a demand factor here. 
right? We, we've known for decades that downsizings are the least effective ways for organizations to respond to economic crises. That very often you have to replace the people that you've hired, not realizing how indispensable their skills were. The people that, uh, that you most want to retain, your superstars, are the most likely to leave because they see the writing on the wall and they have opportunities elsewhere. And then the people who stay are just racked with survivor guilt. And that leads them to focus narrowly on just doing their jobs as opposed to broadly on solving problems and trying to help the company succeed and survive. And against that backdrop, I think a lot of employees have lost trust in their employers. And that's gonna create a competitive advantage and an opportunity for leaders who say, you know what, I commit to not doing any layoffs and we're gonna all get through this together, even if it means cutting my own pay. Hmm. Susan, I want to go back to something you said at the very top of our discussion, that these changes in how we work and how we do our day are likely going to have spill-off ramifications for, for cities, for transportation networks, and, and more. I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about what the, how cities are likely to evolve coming out of this and, and, and how transportation will change. Well, it's still early days and it's hard to know how much is going to stick, say, three to five years from now. But it's clear that if we go to even a model where one in five people works from home three to five days a week, today that happens for about five or six percent of the workforce. So we're talking about three or four times as many people working from home. And we know those of us on this Skype call today are probably working from home, you know that you drive less, you use public transportation less, um, there's less spending on lunches out, on the shopping that occurs in downtown city centers. And so even, even a shift to 20, 25% of people spending more time at home could have really important ramifications for the restaurants, for the retail stores, and different modes of transportation and public transportation. At the same time, though, we see different types of spending. So grocery sales are up, uh, home office equipment, home exercise equipment. So it's not that spending overall goes down, but it's different. And, and when people start to work from home, what we've seen in the pandemic is some shift of, of um, workers and companies out of city centers into suburbs and even into other cities. So we got, we worked with LinkedIn to use some of their member data and looked at who over the course of 2020 changed the location on their LinkedIn profile. And what you see is a very clear trend of lots of people moving out of San Francisco, New York, the other big expensive cities and into either suburbs or some of the smaller cities. So Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Richmond, yeah. Virginia. So some places that haven't been dynamic hubs in the past. Now, whether that continues long-term, we'll have to wait and see, but it's clear that um, COVID has made, I think more people and more companies think more creatively about where they wanna be located than they did before the pandemic. Yep. My hometown of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is one of those boom cities, thanks to these readjustments. Adam, last question to you. Uh, can, Susan's given us a little bit of a teaser about their upcoming report. I know your great book is out next week, Think Again. What is a, can you give us a little snippet on what a top takeaway or two is from your book on the future of work? Yeah, happy to. I think the, the place to start is three years ago, I went to 10 of the most powerful CEOs in Silicon Valley. And I said, look, I want to do a remote Friday experiment.
we'll just give people one day to work from anywhere and let's track the impact on productivity, collaboration, creativity, culture. They all said no. And they were afraid of opening Pandora's box. They said people might never come back. We might lose productivity. Everyone will slack off. Company is going to fall apart. Ironically, at least three of those CEOs have now announced that they might never go back to an office. And if you think about the missed opportunities there, right? They could have had a two-year head start on practice with remote work and collaboration. And so I think for a lot of people, 2020 was the year of forced rethinking. My aspiration for 2021 is that it's a year of more proactive rethinking, where we take a lot of the assumptions that we've taken for granted about where we work and when we work and how we even run our meetings. And we ask ourselves, what experiments could be we be running to figure out whether there's room for improvement or progress? And then we actually choose to run those more deliberately and a little bit more systematically than we did before. And I actually just got a copy of this. So I'm hoping that it helps yeah, a few people rethink their assumptions. I like that. A year of proactive thinking. That sounds like a good motto for 2021. Adam Grant and Susan Lund, thank you both so much for great insights today. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. You can find out what's coming up next on Washington Post Live. Tomorrow we will have an exciting interview with uh, Melinda Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, about their take on the future post-pandemic. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.